The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. That was one of the most revealing things to me is somebody who was very clearly closely related to the FBI had sent an email to the now number two at the FBI in the immediate wake of January 6th and said, listen, we've got a lot of folks who are sympathetic uh, to the people who storm the Capitol. And that's certainly a component of, of this problem. And I think also helps explain why they were not as prepared as they, uh, they should have been. It's certainly one of the factors. Uh, I think political bias did play a role here. And just, you know, when you had a situation where there was so much focus on Antifa and Black Lives Matter, and obviously there were there's a lot of destruction and violence uh, in 2020, um, but I think politics undoubtedly, you know, played a role here in the end about why they were not prepared for uh, January 6 and not being able to see how quickly that Blue Lives Matter crowd would flip on police uh, who are doing their jobs um, on January 6. I'm Molly Reynolds, senior fellow at Brookings and senior editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare podcast, July 20th. 2023. Last month, the majority staff of the Senate Rules and Governmental Affairs Committee released a report entitled Plant in Plain Sight, a review of the intelligence failures in advance of January 6, 2021, which explores one of the biggest remaining questions about that day. Why didn't the government see this coming? I sat down with Quinta Jurassic, senior editor of Lawfare and fellow at Brookings, and Ryan Riley, justice reporter at NBC News, to discuss the report's findings how it fits in with other investigations about the insurrection, and where we go from here. If you're interested, you can also find my and Quintus' article on the report on Lawfare. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 20th, 2023. Congress investigates January 6th, again. All right, so Quinta, to start us off, can you just give kind of a general overview of the report that we are talking about today? So this is a report that is evocatively titled Planned in Plain Sight, a review of the intelligence failures in advance of January 6, 2021. Um, And it's a majority staff report from the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs, which I'm sure we will refer to over the course of this podcast by its acronym, HISGAC. It's a, as I said, it's a majority staff report and the name of the committee's chairman, Gary, Senator Gary Peters is on it. So it's not from the full committee. It's just from the majority. And it's essentially, I would think of it as kind of a follow on from a bipartisan staff report that HISGAC put together with the Senate Rules Committee in the spring of 2021 that dug into some of the law enforcement failures, failures at the Pentagon, sort of 
problems of preparedness um, in advance of January 6 and why it took so long for the government to respond effectively to the riot. That report spent a fair amount of time looking at the Pentagon, looking at DHS, looking at Capitol Police, looking at the Justice Department. And what this report essentially says uh, explicitly is that after that report came out, Peters directed the majority staff on his committee to dig a little more into the question of intelligence failures. So not failures of response, but instead asking why did the intelligence divisions of the FBI and of the Department of Homeland Security, which is an office that uh, is called Intelligence and Analysis, uh, I think we probably refer to by again by its acronym INA, why they didn't see the six coming, or to the extent that they did see the six coming, why they didn't warn anybody about it. It's pretty harsh, I would say. Um, Ryan, I don't know what you thought. I, I kind of thought it could be a bit harsher. Um, but but uh, it's it's definitely more direct in its criticism of the intelligence agencies than anything else that we've seen out of Congress so far. Certainly more than the January 6th report, and we can talk about that. Um, but also more than the rules his report as well, which sort of uh, I think perhaps because it was a bipartisan report held back from really uh, maybe taking the agencies to task in the way that it could have. So um, before we get into some of the details about really what is in this report, which again, Quinta, as you point out, really is an explicitly a follow up to this um, this report from at this point about two years ago. I'm curious to hear from both of you and Ryan, maybe I'll start with you about kind of why do you think that Congress really I think until this report has largely been uninterested in sort of digging into some of these failures um, on the intelligence side, both at the FBI um, and at DHS. I mean, I think a couple of reasons for the January 6th committee, at least at the last moments, I don't think this was the staff at all, because I think that the the staff very much thought that you could tell both of the stories of Donald, why, you know, all the things that Donald Trump did were problematic, uh, as well as why federal law enforcement should have done more and should have seen this coming um, at the same time. Um, But there was a sense, uh, as we sort of reported out, uh, that it would distract from that broader message and that if you were talking about intelligence and law enforcement failures, that was something that Trump supporters and Trump backers could point to um, instead of uh, the responsibility that the president bared for what happened uh, that day. So that's sort of a political decision that, that they made there. And I think, you know, my view is probably to the, the it's not a benefit to the public that that happened, because I think what this report really does in a lot of ways is, is pick up all of those scraps uh, that were sort of left on the table and, you know, that you had to sort of piece together uh, through these interviews. And that was one thing that the January 6th committee uh, did really well, I think, in terms of just releasing all of that information. So you could go through and just read over these interviews uh, that they did with all of these officials. And that's what a lot of this report does is highlight some of uh, those parts that, you know, basically, I think this new report reaches the conclusion that you would inevitably reach if you were to read through all of these interviews that the January 6th committee did and review the publicly available information, which is that there was a lot out there and a lot of ways that federal law enforcement uh, failed to really paint the full picture of what was going to happen that day. And I think there's a combination of of reasons and that that all came together, which the, the report sort of lays out. But it is sort of, you know, remarkable that it took two and a half years to sort of get to this point when 
I think it was pretty obvious that, you know, I think it was, <laughs> it was on its face pretty obvious that federal law enforcement could have done more. Just if you even just read the stories that were coming out in the days leading up uh, to January 6th, uh, I mean, a lot of journalists knew that there was going to be some stuff that happened that day and that this was uh, a potentially brewing problematic uh, situation. Um, and just saying this was all dependent upon what happened, what Donald Trump said that day, especially when we know that the barricades were breached before Trump's speech was even finished, um, you know, is, is something that I don't think really shows you the full picture of the available public evidence that was out there leading up to January 6th. Yeah, just to follow up on that, I mean, I think it's important to underline that, you know, as Ryan, as you say, the January 6th committee report says um, again and again, you know, Donald Trump was the central cause of January 6th. Donald Trump was the central cause of January 6th. And I don't think that we're disputing that, like, Trump in, you know, in a the sense of causation, like what made January 6th happen? Like, yes, absolutely. The fact that he was out there saying, be there, we'll be wild, riling people up, not telling them to go home. Like, obviously, that caused January 6th. I think, and I I think this is a fair description, what the January 6th committee report did was use that framing as a way to downplay uh, paper over, in some cases, I would argue, actively misrepresent um, the failures of intelligence community and law enforcement to see this coming and to respond to it and how those failures contributed to this sort of broader incendiary environment that Trump set up. And as you say, Ryan, I think it is a real disservice. And in part, it's enabled the question of security failures on January 6th to kind of become something that is used as a political talking point by the right. Um, we saw, I'm not sure quite how long ago, but so, some some month ago, Marjorie Taylor Greene pointing to interviews done by staff on the January 6th committee who were saying, you know, that uh, there were failures by law enforcement and intelligence agencies and kind of saying, aha, see, it wasn't Trump. Um, when, of course, the real answer is that it's a combination of all of those things. But because the January 6th committee kind of created this, I would argue, artificial division between those different sort of causal factors, uh, it becomes difficult to talk about law enforcement and intelligence failures without feeding into that rhetoric. I will say so far, it doesn't seem like this report from Hisgak has done that, uh, maybe just because it kind of flew under the radar, <laughs> frankly. Uh, but maybe that's a positive sign. I don't know. Yeah, so I think that uh, to sort of build on what you were just saying, Quinta, um, there are a couple of really concrete ways in which this report adds to our understanding of what happened on um, on January 6th. And so one of them um, does involve the FBI and DHS and their struggles with their own internal guidelines around collecting and processing open source information. Quinta, sort of what do we know about why this was such a problem and what do we know about what we might do to solve it? Yeah, so you're you're going to have to bear with me here because this gets really complicated really fast. So I had written um, sort of immediately after the 6th a piece on lawfare digging into the different authorities that the FBI has to look at publicly available information uh, without a sort of an investigation being underway, uh, to put it colloquially, because – both FBI Director Chris Ray and then Assistant Director for Counterterrorism Jill Sanborn had gone in front of Congress in the aftermath of January 6th and said, 
Use language that essentially communicated the FBI was barred from looking at, you know, all of those posts that said, hey, I'm coming to the Capitol, you know, with all of my guns and my explosives. And I had raised the question then of like, you know, why are they saying this? Because it seems pretty clear if you actually look at the internal FBI guidelines that that's not the case. I will admit to feeling somewhat vindicated when I read the section of this report that essentially says, yes, like that, that is correct, that the Bureau, they have this authorities. It is very clear. Um, they say that Sanborn, uh, quote, mischaracterized, end quote, what the Bureau couldn't do and uh, exaggerated. Again, that's a quote, the limits on the Bureau's authorities. I thought that that was really crucial. Um, although I will note that they didn't uh, address the fact that Chris Ray also made comments that I think were pretty misleading. And Ryan, I was curious what you thought about this. There's one particular element that I think actually broke some news that buried deep in here. So Ray had had said before Congress um, essentially heavily implied that the Bureau didn't have any investigative processes underway in advance of the six that could have provided the Bureau with the authorities that they needed to make that ability to look at social media sort of ironclad. And the, the majority staff report says, well, we asked the FBI if that was the case. And the Bureau says, and this is a quote, that the FBI, quote, had an open assessment that under our investigative guidelines gave us authority to identify, obtain, and utilize information about actual or potential national security threats federal criminal activities, or the vulnerability to such threats or activities, end quote. So they did have those investigative processes underway. They just weren't using that authority. And Molly, I've only answered the first half of your question. <laughs> but Ryan, I do. I did want to ask you, like, what did you make of that? Because I read that and my jaw was on the floor. <laughs> you know, I think that lone wolf bias really played a huge component here, right? The FBI is used to handling these things as, as sort of one-offs. And that's how they really did handle this, right? They did do a bunch of these sort of outreaches and, you know, had people show up to people's homes or do some door knocking and said, hey, you know, I don't know what you're thinking here, like that sort of thing, right? They basically, I, I forget the word they exactly used to intervene um, in these situations, but they like, you know, went to some extremists who were planning on coming to DC ahead of time and sort of you know, maybe dissuaded them from uh, from actually uh, traveling to DC on January six, and I think that's really you know there was a they had the investigative authority, but there really were just like this this such a strange combination of factors that really came about that I think you know this <laughs> that ended up really mucking up this uh, this situation. And you know, I, when I was putting together um, my book of the timeline on this, um, you know, just you know. Quick plug in there, uh, Sedition Hunters out uh, October seventeenth. Uh, I really didn't realize until that moment when I was sort of overlapping these moments how intertwined and how distracted a lot of the leadership of the Justice Department and FBI were at these key moments uh, leading up uh, to the attack. Because you know, if you put this out on a calendar, what's been described as one of you know the, the craziest meeting uh, of of the Trump presidency happened only a, you know a couple of weeks out, and that was right before Christmas on you know December nineteenth, which really set all of these events in motion. So of course you have all, you know a lot of people who are sort of checked out already. I think during that key period, then you had the Nashville um, attack that we sort of all uh, forget about, where a guy set off a bomb in downtown Nashville, and that sucked up a bunch of these resources on Christmas Day. 
and then you know you have just a bunch of these other things coming in and you ha- you have like literally the acting attorney general of the United States and acting deputy attorney general of the United States thinking they were about to be fired via tweet when some of these planning meetings are happening in that weekend just before January 6th. They thought they were out. They thought Jeffrey Clark was going to be the new um, acting attorney general. In fact, uh, one of the interviews, I think the deputy attorney general talked about taking things off of his wall and packing them up into boxes. Um, And when you have all these factors, like just the, the general distraction this sort of chaos, all of this incoming information that they weren't handled, uh, they weren't prepared to really um, handle. I mean, it just, it really was just a sort of perfect storm uh, that left them really, really um, not ready and not warning people. And then, you know, yeah, add in the political layer of it, right? Like, <laughs> you don't want a situation. I think that there was a lot of people who probably were pretty hesitant to put out, put their name on something that would say that this event was you know, a national security threat, just based on the information that was, uh, that was rolling in, um, because that then gets sucked into the political universe, you're going to get called before Congress, what if it, you know, it went fine, and nothing had happened, right? And then, you know, then you just are all subject to all the scrutiny, all of a sudden, I think that, you know, any sort of joint memo about January 6th, sent out ahead of time would have leaked immediately. Um, And I think that that was a factor based on a review of all this information that we had uh, coming out via FOIA. They really did try to keep a tight hold on information. And that's exactly the opposite of uh, what, uh, you know, we really were supposed to be the lessons that came out of a little report that came out uh, a couple decades ago now um, after the uh, September 11th attacks. So on this um, on this question of uh, things that the um, FBI uh, did or did not release, um, this report also takes up what I know is one of both of your favorite things to talk about, which is the FBI's Norfolk report, um, which is uh, the FBI is consistently pointing to a report out of the Norfolk field office as one of sort of the key intelligence products it released in the run up to January 6th. Um, Ryan, do we learn anything new from this report about that report, um, the one that came out of the Norfolk field office? In this report specifically, I'm not sure that we learned a, a ton new. Maybe um, correct me if I'm wrong there. I think that generally there is, you know, the sense of even though DC had been receiving all of this information and even though they had had these reports in the fall, like that sort of previewed, you know, they even did an exercise at one point talking about what the potential outcomes of a disputed election would be. That was an experiment that they sort of did that we haven't really fully set eyes on the the potential outcomes that they came up with there. But, you know, the idea that this was coming out of, you know, a field office that wasn't the Washington field office is problematic there. And I think the leadership changes that we saw at WFO after January 6th indicate that there are some deeper problems there. We saw a whole new crew come in. I think, you know, of the five of the five sort of top officials there, I believe four of them moved to new positions or were replaced and one of them changed positions. But, you know, that happened a few months just after January 6th. And I think you can, you can take a lot from that because they weren't, I mean, you know, you look at the excuses that were provided um, and Jennifer Moore is someone who comes into a lot of uh, focus here, who was the head of intelligence uh, at the time for the Washington field office. And and just some of the excuses that were coming uh, that she gave to the committee. I don't know really if, you know, if this new report, thinks that they hold much water, you know, and given the amount of intelligence that was incoming, it, it, it just doesn't really seem to stack up um, uh, the excuses that they sort of gave for why there wasn't something done that would really, you know, ring the alarm, I think, for, for Capitol Police and for all of the law enforcement agencies in DC about the threat that they were facing that day. 
Yeah, I guess there's also information in there about a report that came out of the New Orleans field office, which, Ryan, you you may have known about, but I that was certainly news to me, which, again, is kind of in that weird category of, you know, well, they did produce this document. <laughs> On the other hand, it doesn't seem like the the staff was hugely impressed with it. They said that it, uh, quote, provided limited information about a specific piece of intelligence only. But, you know, Props to the New Orleans and Norfolk field offices, I guess. I'm not totally sure why they were on the ball when no one else was. The one that always sticks out to me, which was talked about in the report, too, uh, was was the reports they were getting from Parler, which just like, you know, given everything that we've seen with the so quote, quote unquote, Twitter files. And it's just it's just so kind of funny to me that you had Parler, this, you know, right wing uh, social media application actively sending in reports about its own users to the FBI and saying, hey, seems troublesome here. Oh, you guys should maybe look into this. Um, and yet we just like, we ignore that, right? Like, we're just like, <laughs> like if that is actually something where it's like, wow, when you have uh, a social media company just actively telling the government about things, I mean, you know, on the one hand, it's like, uh, it, that's something that there should be broader discussions about, um, right? Like that's a delicate balance to figure out where that is when, you know, there's too many links between law enforcement and these social media companies. But, you know, it's that's something that you could have a real educated debate and discussion about. But instead, we sort of get a lot of this nonsense conspiracy theories that is what Congress is mostly focused on these days when it comes to uh, January 6th. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, 
big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So another sort of important thread that I think is emerging from various investigative products, um, including this report, is what uh, Quinta and I refer to in the piece that we wrote about this report as sort of Murphy's Law factors. So a while back, Quinta and I um, had on the podcast Nick Schwellenbach from the Project on Government Oversight, who has a report about um, staffing changes inside the intelligence division at the U.S. Capitol Police, um, staffing changes that happened sort of the November 2020 time uh, timeframe that were, again, kind of ill-timed for uh, thinking about preparedness for something like this. Um, but, you know, there's no evidence that they were malicious. Um, Ryan, the last time we had you on the podcast, uh, we talked about, um, and you talked about this a little bit earlier on this uh, podcast as well, this sort of the role of like Christmas um, <laughs> and um, just kind of people feeling really burnt out at the end of 2020, which was, you know, a hellacious year in all kinds of ways. And so this report kind of adds another case of this, which is this this planned, though again, ill-timed transition at the FBI in the contract um, for software that the FBI used to help monitor open source um, information. So, Quinta, I'm curious, kind of, how should we think about these sorts of factors without, again, totally letting folks off the hook? Kind of, can you give us just an, a framework for thinking about that? 
Yeah, I think to me the software transition is a really good example. And I don't think this is new information. I believe that this had already been been reported. And it's also worth noting that the staff report's drawing on a number of other reports from offices of inspectors general, though not the DOJ inspector general. We're still waiting on that one. And transcripts from the January 6th committee and so on. The, the, the software transition, so the FBI has a contract with this company that's called Data Miner. The contract is supposed to switch over at the end of December, beginning of January. And essentially what that means is that they end up at the beginning of January uh, with the services from this new company, which I think is called Zero Fox. But it's not set up yet. And nobody really knows how to use it. And so they're kind of flying blind. Um, and there's a, an email from uh, Jennifer Moore, who was the special agent in charge at the at the Washington field office, as, as you mentioned, Ryan, essentially saying like, well, you know, nothing we can do about this, but it's certainly not convenient. And it is true that, you know, it's it doesn't seem like anyone was being actively malicious. Um, you know, they're doing the best they can with what they have. On the other hand, I kind of looked at that and said, you know, seriously, like nobody looked at this and said, you know, it's maybe a bad idea to migrate our software um, our co- and change over our contract right in advance of the this counting of the electoral vote. Even if you weren't worried about the electoral count, there's the inauguration coming up. That's always a security problem, given all of the rhetoric flying around that that that's kind of hard to Imagine, and I can certainly see, and this is total speculation, how, you know, government contracting uh, is a really a clash between the immovable object and <laughs> incredible force. It's hard to just say, you know, actually, we're going to extend this contract for another month. On the other hand, if you had leadership who were really willing to go to the map for that and push for that and make it happen, maybe it would have been easier. But because everybody kind of had an incentive to keep their head down, um, you could see how it might fall by the wayside a little bit. And so it's not, again, it's not malice. It's not anybody trying to do anything wrong, but it just sort of ends up being a confluence of factors that generates this real catastrophe. Ryan, I'm curious what you think of that. Does that sound right to you or am I out on a limb here? Yeah. And I don't know if it came out in the report as well, but I've definitely read a FOIA request, I mean, a FOIA request that came back um, where the special agent in charge, like the highest guy in the uh, Washington field office got involved in this too. And was like, you know, like they knew what a serious thing this was. They were trying to get that, you know, talk with other people and try to get this fixed. But you just, I mean, you needed some overlap there. You couldn't just transition to an entirely new software program with none of your, you know, keywords set up. It, it was just impossible um, for that to work well. Um, you know, you there just seems like there would, you can't have a contract end and then like, oh, okay, like let's get onto this new one. You have to be set up. You know, I think of it as sort of the CMS, right? Like, uh, the content management system for a news outlet. It's not as though you would just, okay, we're ending this one and there's a brand new one, right? Because then you wouldn't be able to publish stories for several days in the in the, inter, uh, in the in-between period. You need to have that training time and get everything all lined up before the old system uh, goes down. And I just, that was just, I mean, just a real mess that uh, was created by this. But, you know, I think still overall, the, the bias was still towards these individual threats rather than seeing the entire picture and the volume of complaints that were coming in, you know, like uh, they, there was a report that again, they 
kept pretty tight and said, like, you know, only circulate to leadership on the evening of or the morning of January 6th that talked about the unprecedented number of calls that they had gotten through the national tip line about you know, political matters, right? Like it didn't drill, it didn't drill down to like January 6th specifically, but there was this huge spike in complaints uh, and concerns about political speech. Um, And I, again, it's just like, think about that coming right off the holidays, right? Like that's the first real day back. If you just, you know, do the math real quick. If, if the sixth is a, is a Wednesday, then, you know, the Monday is really that first real day back. They're coming just off of the new year, right? Like there's, it really does just make a lot of sense why there were <laughs> failures here and why they didn't see the full picture coming. So Molly, there's one question that I wanted to get your thoughts on. The The report kind of emphasizes again and again, you know, the difficulty that the committee had getting information from DHS and DOJ and sort of says again and again, we really need to deal with this problem of essentially executive branch obstruction to congressional requests for information. It doesn't set out you know, what particularly should be done other than, you know, just identifying it as a problem. But are there sort of possible solutions um, to this that you would have in mind? Yeah, so you're absolutely right that, you know, this comes up in, in the report. I think it's sort of interesting because a lot of what we know about the relationship um, between Congress and the executive branch um, in the context of information requests tells us that kind of in the contemporary area that can have really strong partisan dynamics. So on one level, like given that this is a democratically controlled committee and these are, you know, now agencies that are now run by appointees of a, a democratic president, though obviously not the FBI director. Um, and we can sort of, that's a kind of whole other kettle of fish. Um, but on some level, you might have otherwise expected maybe more cooperation given the the kind of partisan alignment and frankly the fact that what we're talking about is this major failure that happened under the watch of the previous president of the other party but we don't get that here we get this um sort of continued effort by agencies to you know not be optimally cooperative with a congressional investigation um and i think one of the big lessons of kind of the the Trump years, um, particularly the the two at the end when uh, Democrats controlled the House, is that this problem is a really tough nut to crack um, when the executive branch can basically just try to run out the clock or slow walk things. Um, and at some point, if you you know want to learn something, you're gonna uh, or put something out into the world, you're just gonna have to you know, do it with the information that you have. Um, to go back to uh, something Ryan mentioned earlier that I think is really um, interesting in this case is that this, in this report, you see the um, majority staff um, on the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee really make use of um, some of the released transcripts from the January 6th committee. And that kind of kind of cross, certainly in this case, both cross-committee and, frankly, cross-chamber cooperation, um, even if it's sort of implicit cooperation um, in uh, investigative efforts, is pretty unusual. But the in this case, the, the majority staff really did take up some of that evidence that was out there. Um, so there are, I believe, 13 interviews with the January 6th committee that are cited in this um, HISCAC report. 
they're all among the set that were released publicly um, to via the government um, printing office in the final days of the select committee's um, life. Uh, but I believe three of them were not actually cited by the select committee in its final report. So it really is this just sort of interesting case of kind of taking evidence that's out there and making use of it for a different purpose, even if the select committee itself didn't make use of it. I think we're going to talk a little bit more about kind of the relationship between the select committee's work um, and this report in a second. But again, I guess I would just say that, you know, this, to me, one of the things this report really highlights is just how hard it is to get the executive branch to cooperate with Congress if the executive branch doesn't want to do that. So I guess maybe now let's return a little bit to where we started and try to put this report from um, Hiscock into a little bit of context, particularly in relation to other investigative work on what happened on January 6th. And so, Ryan, I want to come back to you. And I just want to say, like, this report's really interesting to read alongside the um, January 6th Select Committee report, which, as you pointed out earlier, really spent, in, a, in certainly in its final report, um, very little time on the question of intelligence and law enforcement failures in favor of really focusing more on the culpability of um, Trump himself. And so you've reported before about how some of the select committee staff was kind of frustrated at those omissions in the final report. Um, And so can you talk a little bit about that and sort of how do you understand this new report in relation to the January 6th committee's work? Yeah, I mean, that was definitely a a major frustration, I think, for uh, a lot of a lot of staffers, because this is an important topic. And they did a lot of, you know, really serious uh, work looking at all the factors here and to leave out uh, a lot of their, you know, work into the final report in service of a, you know, a political goal was frustrating uh, to a lot of them. I, you know, had someone remark that they didn't sign up to, you know, join Liz Cheney's uh, 2024 campaign, Um, you know, that (laughs) their, you know, their motivation was figuring out how this happened and how to prevent it from happening again. And, you know, that that's the frustrating thing, because it would have been nice to have this report, I think, earlier or have it in a format that would have gotten um, more attention because instead we are really, you know, more in silly season with a lot of the issues that are getting brought before the FBI these days. And I do think you've noticed a little bit of a difference in the FBI's responses to this. Uh, you know, I think when you had Chris Ray come up and call something, uh, you know, a, a notion idiotic, that was that was something, right? Like that, that was the, <laughs> the most, the strongest response I've seen come from uh, Chris Ray in that scenario. You also had, you know, them engaging on social media a little bit more and still while following the guidelines that they're, what they're allowed to speak about, I think pushing back a little bit more on some of these narratives and not just like letting them, you know, take hold as much as they did. Of course, you know, it's a little bit late uh, at this point because I just think you have so many Americans who really do buy into some of these more, conspiracy-minded ideas about the FBI. And, you know, I just think even if you just go back to 2015, the notion that the FBI is some sort of, you know, uh, (laughs) den of liberals uh, is just not something that is in any way related to uh, the facts or history. So I think that that's, it's it's nice to be brought back to reality um, a little bit here. You know, I would, I would be more interested in finding out more about some of the cultural problems within the FBI. And that's uh, something that I think, you know, now Democrats are highlighting a little bit as you get some of these, you know, air quotes, whistleblowers coming in from the FBI, talking about January 6th cases and pushing back on some of these people who have testified for uh, Republicans. Um, Because that, I mean, really, (laughs) 
I think that the existence of those individuals within the FBI really highlights some some problems when you have people who themselves believe sort of really out there conspiracy theories or just don't think that you know any January six cases should be prosecuted is, is is just sort of wild and that was one of the most revealing things to me is somebody who was very clearly closely related to the FBI had sent an email to the now number two at the FBI in the immediate wake of January 6th and said, listen, we've got a lot of folks who are sympathetic uh, to the people who stormed the Capitol. And that's certainly a component of, of this problem. And I think also helps explain why they were not as prepared as they, uh, they should have been. It's certainly one of the factors. Uh, I think political bias did play a role here. And just, you know, when you had a situation where there was so much focus on Antifa and Black Lives Matter, and obviously there were there's a lot of destruction and violence uh, in 2020, um, but I think politics undoubtedly, you know, played a role here in the end about why they were not prepared for uh, January 6th and not being able to see how quickly that Blue Lives Matter crowd would flip on police uh, who are doing their jobs um, on January 6th, given the stakes, um, because, you know, it didn't take that much imagination to think that people who honestly thought that the election was stolen some of them might do something about it. Um, it just sort of follows. If you were to believe that, you might be willing to do some things about it. And a lot of, you know, millions of Americans believing these wild conspiracy theories um, is a pretty inherently dangerous situation, especially when you're gathering thousands of them and telling them uh, that this is the last stand, that this is the final moment where they um, were able to save uh, America from going to um, an illegitimate president in their view. Yeah, I think that point about the sort of absence of uh, investigation into cultural issues at the Bureau in this report is is really, really important. I was struck by how the report does go a little bit into how the DHS INDA office uh, was hesitant in using its own abilities to monitor public-facing social media because of the mini scandal, I guess, around how aggressive the agency was during the George Floyd protests, particularly in Portland, where it was dinged for collecting uh, the tweets of a number of journalists, including, I should say, Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes. Uh, so we're, we're not, our hands are not totally clean here. And that, I think, is key. And that's part of, a part of the story that I feel like shows up again and again in all these reports that there was kind of a overcorrection from the George Floyd protests. Um, but while the report describes that in INDA, it doesn't really go into that at the Bureau at all. And that's something that I'm very curious to, to see more about. Again, we're still waiting on that DOJ Inspector General report. Uh, maybe there'll be something about it in there. Let's talk about where you, um, you left off um, and just thinking about kind of where there is still work to be done, where work is still being done. So this report indicates that Senator Peters, at least, is planning on continuing to investigate uh, January 6th um, in terms of other ongoing investigations, as Quinta just mentioned. One of the major shoes left to drop is the Justice Department Office of Inspector General's report on the Justice Department's handling of January 6th. that uh, has been in the works for a while. Um, Ryan, do we know anything about where that stands, um, when we might um, see that, kind of where that all is? We don't. I think that really the complicating factor to me there is it's also a little bit intertwined, maybe not even a little bit, maybe more than a little bit intertwined uh, with uh, the special counsel investigation um, because of this effort to 
<laughs> take over the Justice Department and use the Justice Department as a uh, political tool. You know, we we saw the search of a, a former Justice Department official's home who had a cell phone season that was conducted by uh, officers, law enforcement officers from the Inspector General's office. So, you know, the Inspector General's office, not surprisingly, is extremely, uh, extremely uh, rigid about their their rules and even, you know, confirming things or any interactions with media are are very closely uh, monitored. So we don't really know exactly where that stands other than that it's ongoing. Um, but it doesn't surprise me entirely that, you know, that's something we haven't seen come out uh, before we do get this results of this uh, investigation this, uh, by Jack Smith, which is really now at the breaking point, at <laughs> a key decision point uh, process this week. Right. Quinta, any thoughts on sort of either the DOJ Inspector General report or really just other like major shoes that we're still, we still expect to drop in our public understanding of what happened on the 6th. I think to me, what I keep going back to first off, there's, you know, there's a lot going on in the special counsel's office that we don't know about, uh, which the news is continually reminding us. So, you know, there may be, a whole closet full of shoes, and we we just don't know. For me, I think what I was interested by about this report in kind of a, a bigger picture sense is what it says about the willingness and interest of Congress in continuing to investigate January 6th after the January 6th committee closed its doors. And what I mean by that is something, Molly, that you and I have written about a bit in the past, that the January 6th committee was kind of, you know, the committee. They were investigating the whole thing, which is in part why their job was so hard, is that they had a huge mandate. But in part because of that, in part because of editorial decisions, uh, like we've mentioned earlier, there's a lot that the report doesn't and can't get into that you know, kind of left me when the report came out there saying, you know, there are committees of jurisdictions here, right? Like, this is not just the work of a select committee. We have the Homeland Security Committee. We have the Intelligence Committees. We have the the committees that perform oversight of uh, the, the Justice Department, right? And so this, at least, is one instance of a committee of jurisdiction saying, you know, like, look, like, we, we can dig into this. We have the authority. And the report, I think, indicates that Peters is planning on continuing that works. So the question in my mind is whether there are any other committees that are interested in pushing this further, or if this is going to become something that kind of falls by the wayside because there's a lot going on. Everybody has a lot to do. You know, the intelligence committees are busy with 702 reform. They maybe don't want to spend a lot of their time digging into, you know, social media monitoring authorities. Maybe we have at this point dug up everything that there is to dig. I don't know. Um, but I'll be curious to see whether we see more coming out of Congress um, sort of in line with this report. Yeah. So as um, I think, Quinta, you and I wrote in one of our um, pieces about the January 6th committee, the most precious resource that congressional committees have is time. You know, you can, if you can make it politically palatable, throw more and more resources um, at a congressional committee, but you cannot give it more hours in the day. Um, and so I think this this observation you make about kind of whether um, HISGAC or other committees are going to continue to prioritize these sorts of investigations is a really good one. Um, Ryan, I know that one of your, NB I think it was one of your NBC News colleagues interviewed 
interviewed Senator Peters about um, the committee's work. Sort of what did he um, what did he say, and what did he did he in- indicate anything um, about kind of future directions of um, investigative work that the um, his committee might be doing? Yeah, which I think that was what was nice is he spoke pretty plainly uh, about what was happening. <laughs> what the issues were and identified them pretty clearly. I think that is the big question, sort of what happens uh, next, just given everything that we've seen. This is clearly an issue uh, that needs to be addressed. And some of this, especially the open source stuff, um, it's something obviously that D- uh, that DOJ and the FBI, um, I think, recognized was, was a failure. But how they're fixing that is something I think that there needs to be some close eyes over. Um, and it's really just going to get more complicated. I, every time there's some sort of change on social media, I sort of think about this. And, you know, when you have, okay, now there's threads, but right now threads isn't really open source because you can't search it. Uh, you can't really search things that are on there. So how is that, how is that really going to be, I don't know, viewed in, in some way, uh, if something's really springing up on there, are they really just going to rely upon members of the public independently sending things in? Um, you know, even just with Elon Musk uh, charging these really exorbitant amounts for sort of uh, the access to data that he would argue is being scraped from from Twitter, those make those tools that the FBI is paying so much for more difficult to operate, right? So There's just a ton. This is a really evolving um, and quickly changing area. And so much of this is unfolding on online and just really getting a grasp on open source intelligence and also, you know, setting up some some rules around that because it's just really important because I think we need to have a more uh, thorough conversation about what the government should and shouldn't be uh, doing um, with all of this publicly available information that is out there. Because as we saw after January 6th, even some of the people in the FBI leadership uh, did not have uh, that understanding uh, that they should have about what their authorities were. I mean, you know, that was just really, really troubling as we sort of (laughs) were discussing up top. Well, that's a great reminder of both how much we've learned already and how much more work there still is to do. Um, So I think we'll leave it there. Um, Thank you, Ryan. Uh, Thank you, Quinta. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. This podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. 
ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.